The world has gone insane. Cosplayers rule the conventions. Gamers dominate the tabletop and the internet. Sci-fi subjugates the movies and fantasy rules the bookstore with an iron fist. Only one group can bring order to this unruly mob. A team of uber geeks, masters of the nerdly arts, trained for decades in the hobby shops and basements of the nation. Mobilized by the secret masters, they are the Department of Nerdly Affairs. Hello, operatives, and welcome to the Department of Nerdly Affairs. I'm your host, Rob Patterson, here with my co-host, Don Chisholm. Yo, J- No, no, not gonna do it. That's too easy. Who has uh, something stuck in his throat. And uh, tonight, we're gonna be talking about G.I. Joe. Not just the real American hero, but Joe's roots. His real roots. Don't worry, it's not gonna be one of those Captain America things where we're gonna find out <laughs> Joe was actually a Nazi. But we're gonna be talking about the history and cultural impact of G.I. Joe. To help us with this, we have recruited an expert on G.I. Joe, Tim Finn. Welcome to the show, Tim. Thank you, Rob. Thank you, Don. So, Tim, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, I live just outside of Boston. Uh, I own and operate a comic book store, Hub Comics, in Somerville, Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, I teach animation, comics, animation history, and drawing at uh, a university in Cambridge, uh, right outside of Boston, Leslie Art Plus Design. Mm-hmm. Um, and since 2001, I have been researching and writing uh, a definitive history of G.I. Joe, which is called A Real American Book. Um, since I'm still writing it, um, uh, I have a blog, which is a arealamericanbook.wordpress.com, where I write stuff that won't fit in the book, uh, and, um, and then I also draw comics, but, uh, I'm taking a couple years off from that because I need to write my book. <laughs> mm. How long do you intend this book to be, Tim? It sounds like you've been working on it a very long time. Uh, I think it'll be 300 pages, but it's a coffee table book. Mm-hmm. So if you imagine your standard hardcover, uh, you know, Batman 75 years or mm. the making of Jurassic Park or, right. um, you know, Spider-Man, the legend, that kind of thing. Uh, this would be comparable. Right. Wow. That sounds amazing. And it sounds like you're absolutely the right person we need to talk to about G.I. Joe. So why don't we launch into the history of G.I. Joe? Um, so where does G.I. Joe come from? Like, where does this all start, Tim? So um, Hasbro in uh, 1920 or 1921 is founded in Rhode Island Mm -hmm. as a a textile company. And within a few decades, they're making uh, pencil boxes and uh, pencils. And um, in the 50s, they introduce a toy, Mr. Potato Head, Mm -hmm. which initially is just the pieces that you stick onto a real potato. Uh, the the plastic body that we think of with holes in it for eyeballs and lips and noses that comes later. Mm. Um, in the '60s, uh, there's a there's a toy inventor as a designer who, um, who who is not a part of Hasbro, and uh, there's this idea that uh, boys are secretly playing with Barbie, or maybe secretly playing with Ken. And in the '60s, uh, you know. 
uh, gender concepts are rigid, mm-hmm. so it is not acceptable for boys to be playing with dolls. Right. And if if there's some way for Hasbro to reframe uh, this toy so that it is okay for boys to play with it, uh, could that sell? And uh, what's it going to look like? Right. So uh, it's a soldier, and uh, it's it's bigger than Barbie, and it's got more articulation, and the costuming and the weapons and the accessories are all uh, really finely made and detailed, and it's a big hit. Right. So that's that's the that's the broad strokes that, that, version. That's the broad strokes. Now, had there not been any like uh, male dolls before then? Ah, you used that D word. So, <laughs> sorry, sorry. Oh uh, my god. So, oh, sorry. So ha- Hasbro stressed this to its sales force in 1964 that GI Joe was not a doll. GI Joe was an action figure, and that is in fact where the term action figure comes from. Oh, okay. uh, and you could argue that. Uh, articulated figurines like puppets or um, green army plastic soldiers and before that, uh, you know, lead soldiers that had been painted. You could argue that that those are a kind of action figure or that they are related to action figures. For all intents and purposes, G.I. Joe in 1964 is the first action figure. Yeah. Yeah, because I know that's the first use of the term. Um Somebody found uh, a couple years ago, it was a, a Superman. I think it was from the 40s that it looked like those artist mannequins, the wooden posable dummies. And it was basically that painted to look like Superman. And that's what some people think is kind of the first like, like, uh, like, like um, non-doll action figure sort of thing. But yeah, the, the, the term comes with the original G.I. Joe and I think even the concept really because the um, that Superman didn't have accessories or anything and that was the idea of G.I. Joe was that you would play with it that you it, it had things for the hands to do that he came with all the equipment you could set it up you could pose him you could hang him off of stuff and and that's where yeah that's I definitely do do feel that yeah that's the the first action figure is the original Joe no. So Don, are you are you describing you're describing something that was mass produced and sold at retail, the Superman figure? Yeah, it it sort of showed up um at 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 an auction and it was mass produced but nobody's exactly sure how widely produced it was. And that's fascinating. It it is and that's why generally it's it's kind of seen more as an anomaly rather than an actual step in the creation of the action figure. Well, I'm happy to be corrected if uh, if there is a if there's an Uber toy collector out there, or if something surfaces uh, in the future. Uh, if GI Joe is sort of essentially the first action figure, but not technically the first action figure, I'm happy to be uh, I'm happy to to stand corrected. And um, my knowledge of GI Joe in the '60s and '70s is general because that's not the focus of my book right. and um and there there have been books about 60s and 70s joe and uh that's not the joe that i grew up with mm-hmm. so um i wasn't particularly a fan of it when i was a kid um i didn't dislike it i sort of didn't know about it and when i learned about it i found it interesting but it was still two steps removed um so i'm i love seeing you know, boxes of that stuff when I go to the G.I. Joe convention 
Uh, one of the books in particular about the 12 inch GI Joe is a favorite of mine and I appreciate it. Um, but in the same way that, uh, you know, like the 1989 Tim Burton Batman is mine and mm. the 1960s mm -hmm. Batman TV show is not, um, I'm, I'm happy to, you know, sort of share GI Joe, uh, with, with fans of, of the other versions of it. <laughs> now, well, who I can... sorry to interrupt, but who oh. created G.I. Joe? You mentioned a toy person. Do you actually have a name for him, a toy inventor? Larry Reiner, R-E-I-N-E-R. -E -E he had pitched an idea mm -hmm. to his boss at Ideal. Uh, he explained the concept to Stan Weston. Mm -hmm. Weston was a licensing agent, and he took the idea to... Don Levine, L-E-V-I-N-E, -E, mm -hmm. who was the head of Hasbro's um, marketing and research. I see. And Don Levine ran with it. Oh, okay. Interesting. Yeah, because uh, Levine is the guy that's generally considered the, uh, I guess I've seen him called the father of Joe kind of thing. Yeah. Um, I, I think it is possible that others at Hasbro who were developing the figure in that initial rush for toy fair um should get more credit yeah and i i don't say that to disparage uh uh, uh levine uh don levine excuse me i don't say that to disparage don levine mm. um but i do think that in the same way that um you know uh stanley and jack kirby um both created the marvel universe but, oh, wait, don't forget, um, you know, the other artists who were there at the time, mm -hmm. like Steve Ditko mm -hmm. or, um, Don you Heck. know, yeah, yeah. Stanley is Stanley is still around to um, tell his story and uh, Jack Kirby is not. Uh, so I think that, um, you know, the official history is the one that gets written down and told. And um those specifics of who did what in 1963 and 1964 are interesting to me, but I am, I will let other authors and researchers um, tell those stories. Mm. And, mm -hmm. you know, this, this sort of origin is a few paragraphs in my book. Um, and I really, in my book, want to get past the sixties and seventies so I can get to 1980. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. Well, that, that makes sense. <laughs> Now, what uh, connection did Joe have with, like, there's Hasbro, but was, Don, was Migo around at that time as well? Uh, yeah, because, uh, sort of. Migo comes in in the late 60s, but they do what's called rack toys. Okay. Which were the little kind of throwaway stuff that you used to get at, like, the dollar stores and that, or at the counter to shut the kids up. And they, they came along... Uh, early 70s they made their 8 inch figure they started with Action Jackson right and Action Jackson in some ways was a response to G.I. Joe uh, the original the original G.I. Joe was super popular up until you get to near the end of the uh, the 60s because of Vietnam any kind mm -hmm. of war related thing sort of wasn't as popular with the public um, the 12 inch Army Joe became the adventure team, which was mm. the same idea. Those are the ones that, from my childhood, that had, like, the fuzzy heads. Mm -hmm. 
I don't I don't know if anybody out there remember it was they they had like um it was frock it was was like like if you ever done gaming miniatures it was the same kind of stuff but they had like these these big beards and stuff and they were adventurers and they were explorers and that and Action Jackson was kind of a response to that and what they did was they did a smaller figure cuz 12 inch was the standard but beginning of the 70s you had the uh, OPEC oil embargo mm. and that made plastic expensive so they made the smaller figure so that you could um you could charge less for it it was less to manufacture hmm makes sense yeah and those took off um the 8 inch thing you could still do vehicles that were relatively affordable you could still have all kinds of accessories uh those took off that happened um by the mid-70s, Hasbro changed G.I. Joe again to the Super Joe. Super Joe? What, he has superpowers now? No, they were they were very science fiction-y. Oh, and okay. And they, they had, like, light-up equipment, and the, the hero guy, it was like the Super Joe with the one-two punch. You'd push his back, and he'd, like, throw a punch. Was this that whole Kung Fu Grip thing? No, the Kung Fu Grip came earlier. That oh, okay. came with, like, the action team. Okay. Super Joe is a a two-year – it's kind of Hasra trying to pull the wool over all the kids' eyes. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. So they, they shrank the figure from 12 inches to 8 inches, and they reduced the articulation, and uh, and they changed the name. So it's not technically G.I. Joe. It's Super Joe. Um, mm-hmm. And it did not sell well, <laughs> and then it was canceled. And uh, – there's not a big fandom out there for Super Joe. I think a lot of fans of uh, the military Joe in the 60s and then Adventure Team um, from 70 to 76, uh, if they were still buying G.I. Uh, Joe in 77 and 78, uh, when it turned into Super Joe, I imagine they were immediately disappointed <laughs> and stuck around. But um, when it was canceled... Um, but when it was canceled, people were disappointed, but the brand, it's time had come yeah. and, uh, and it was going to be too expensive as Don was saying, because of the cost of oil, something needed to be done. Mm-hmm. Uh, what changed in the interim was Kenner released its star Wars line, mm-hmm. which was, which was expansive. And though that size three and three quarter inches had been around, because of Star Wars, that was now the default size for action figures. Yeah. So if Hasra was going to bring back G.I. Joe in 1982, say, uh, it was going to be at that size. Yeah. So then the real American hero, Joe, is totally a response to Star Wars? Yes. So Kenner, Kenner and Star Wars were rivals, and Kenner had this unbelievable partner in Lucasfilm and to a lesser extent 20th Century Fox the advertising was there was, of course there was television advertising for the toy line but in a on a broader sense the major advertising was already paid for it was these three movies right that everyone saw and stuck around in theaters for months and months and months and people saw more than once and it was this cultural phenomenon in a way that uh, we have a hard time comparing it to because now 
the the pie for a culture is so much bigger, but also has been sliced into so many more pieces. You know, I can be a fan of this TV show and you're watching a different show and you're watching a movie on your laptop. And I've heard the show that you like is amazing, but I'm never going to get around to it because there are 50 shows I need to catch up. Mm. And <laughs> that's not even counting comics and books and, you know, yeah. the news. Yeah. But, you know, in 1980 and 1983, Star Wars is this cultural juggernaut, and there there was a great loyalty inside Hasbro to G.I. Joe because G.I. Joe had built the modern Hasbro. Mm. It wasn't just a popular toy in the 60s and 70s. It was a huge hit for Hasbro. Uh, yeah. it, was the first, it was the first toy to be advertised on television year-round. Because up until then, uh, toys on, uh, excuse me, up until then, ads on TV only ran at Christmas. Yeah. And um, Hasbro in 1980 mm -hmm. uh, is, in com is a completely different company compared to what Hasbro is now. It was still a family company. Mm -hmm. It was the third generation of owners in the Hassenfeld family, right? Mm -hmm. This is where Hasbro comes from, right? So the first three letters of Hassenfeld and the first three letters of brothers. So oh, Hasbro. Oh, okay. That's what Hasbro, Hassenfeld mm -hmm. brothers. Huh. Yes. So in 1980, it's the third generation of Hassenfeld brothers. Mm -hmm. And it is a small company. And it's, it's all in Rhode Island, mm -hmm. right? It's all in Pawtucket, Rhode Island. It's not, it's not New York. It's not Los Angeles. Um, there is no clout with a small toy company that takes up a couple, you know, manufacturing uh, buildings, you know, in Pawtucket, mm. <laughs> Rhode Island. <laughs> There's no clout there to say get a movie made, right? You know, the 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 relationships and the the conglomerates that we're used to nowadays, where an entertainment company owns several other entertainment companies mm. or consumer products companies, or they just have relationships with each other. Um, that was not as, as big and interconnected then. Um, Hasbro didn't have a movie mm. and there was, there was no way Hasbro was going to get a movie made. Right. Hasbro mm. couldn't fund a movie. <laughs> um, you know, maybe Hasbro could fund television, but that is not what happened the first year. Uh, the first year there's just an advertisement. But it's a really, really good, expensive, exciting, gorgeous, fun, did I mention exciting advertisement. <laughs> okay, what was the first advertisement then? Was it an animated one or was it kids playing with toys? What did the first kids see on TV? Yeah, it's a minute long and it's all animation. There, there are no kids and there are no toys. And this was this really crafty workaround because rules for broadcast television were strict when it came to to using animation to portray things for kids. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is, this is about protecting the consumer. Uh, you know, do kids know the difference between fantasy and reality? Right. And if you have too much animation in a commercial for, I don't know, candy or a toy uh, for a kid, uh, will the kid think that the toy can do things that it can't actually do? Mm -hmm. um, this is why in the 80s when you, when you watch when you were watching television and you'd see mm -hmm. um, ads for toys, you know, you'd have to see a hand, an arm holding the plane. Mm -hmm. oh, plane okay. couldn't, the, 
the plane couldn't be shown to fly by itself unless the plane could actually fly by itself. This is this is intended to protect mm -hmm. the consumer. Mm -hmm. um, so um, Hasbro, uh, through its ad agency, mm -hmm. Griffin, Griffin Bacall, which was in New York, mm -hmm. uh, Griffin Bacall had been working with Hasbro for a long time. And uh, they had this idea um, to partner with Marvel Comics mm -hmm. and the story, right? Star Wars, the story is told in the movies. Right, right. For for Hasbro, for this new G.I. Joe, the story was going to be told in comic books. Mm -hmm. And uh, this crafty workaround for this first advertisement is that the the minute of animation is not going to advertise a toy. It's going to advertise a comic book. It does not mention the toy. Right. And at the end of it, at the end of it, it just says... The Legend of G.I. Joe, you know, Marvel Comics. Mm. <laughs> and the image the image that it ends with is the cover of issue number one. Right. Mm. And kids were smart and we're going to be able to connect the two, right? You mm. advertise for one thing, but it's all the same characters and you're going to the toy store anyway. Uh, <laughs> this ad was followed up by, you know, a regular ad that just showed the toys. Right. Yeah. But here's a question. So where did the whole G.I. Joe Real American Hero story come from? Is that the result from Hasbro or Marvel? Uh, both. So it breaks down into different departments at Hasbro, right? There's mm -hmm. marketing, there's uh, R&D, research and design, uh, which includes the art department. And this is before they have uh, a separation for uh, boys toys and girls toys that comes a that comes a couple years later mm -hmm. so there are some really talented toy designers there um, two of them are Ron Rudat uh, and Wayne Luther and there are two really smart marketers there and one is Kirk Bazigian and another is uh, his boss Bob Prupis mm -hmm. so uh, he's marketing, and Kirk Bazigian is just a copywriter. He just writes uh, the instructions or the stats that are on the front and the back and the side of the package, um, or if there's any kind of you know catalog literature mm -hmm. uh, for the toys. So, um, uh, and there are a couple other people in in R and D in the intervening years. Right, mm -hmm. uh, this is 1980. GI Joe has been off the market for two years. And again, there's all this loyalty inside this very small company, which is a family-owned company, right? Lots of employees there love G.I. Joe and had worked on G.I. Joe just a few years ago. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, the idea comes up pretty often, right? Let's bring back G.I. Joe. But there has to be a different way of doing it, um, which is where the comic book and advertising for the comic book comes about. Um, hmm. You know they they know that they can make good toys, but there needs to be a hook because if they just if Hasbro just releases some GI Joe toys without something extra, uh, it's going to fail, and then it's going to be embarrassing, mm -hmm. right? And that does that does great damage to the brand and the company. So Ron Rudat and Wayne Luther and a couple other designers in R and D start evolving some pieces of artwork. And there's a sculptor named Jim Totley. And he puts some, I think it's clay, 
on an existing competitor's three and three quarter inch mm. action figure mm. and turns it into what looks like uh, just a just a grunt, just an olive drab army guy. Mm. And uh, this thing has actually been displayed at JoeCon at the, the annual uh, G.I. Joe collector's convention hmm. the last, uh, I think the last two years um, hmm. at a booth called Joe Declassified, which is uh, actually a nonprofit run by some wonderful fans who are collecting and curating some of this earliest uh, and rare uh, stuff. Actually, not even the earliest stuff, uh, 82 all the way to 95. So, um, so R and D and and marketing convince the higher ups, and that goes hand in hand with the ad agency, the two guys in New York, Griffin and Bacall, those are their last names, hmm. coming up with this idea for how to advertise this thing. So um, Hasro meets with Marvel, and um, in 1980, 1981. Marvel had licenses. Marvel had a Star Wars comic, uh, Battlestar Galactica comic. There had been a Godzilla comic mm -hmm. uh, and Shogun Warriors. Yep. Um, and, you know, they would do movie adaptations, uh, you know, Aliens, or I guess the first one, Alien, and some of the James Bond movies, um, Indiana Jones. So um, Marvel is the hotter of the two big publishers at the time. DC's not doing as well and. 81, 82. So um, there's a meeting and at the meeting are um, among other people, uh, Archie Goodwin, mm -hmm. who's an editor at Marvel and Larry Hama, who is an editor at Marvel. Larry Hama is a fascinating creative person. He had been an editor at DC and he was now an editor at Marvel mm -hmm. But he was also drawing comics for a competitor because his boss gave him permission because he proved to his boss that he couldn't get work at Marvel drawing comics for one of the other editors. Huh. Hmm. At, at the time, Marvel had – and this went until I think uh, uh, 1999 or 2000. Mm -hmm. Marvel had a policy, uh, at least in the 80s um, – probably in the 70s, but I don't know, that the staff editors were encouraged and expected to also write freelance for the other editors. Hmm. And uh, a positive way of saying this is that uh, it kept the universe integrated and connected. Mm -hmm. And a negative way of saying it would be that that was unfair mm -hmm. <laughs> and... Um, and in incestuous. Mm -hmm. hmm. So, um, so Larry Hama um, had uh, been an assistant to Wally Wood, who's one of the creative leading lights of comics in the fifties uh, and sixties and seventies. Mm -hmm. And uh, Larry Hama had been on Broadway and uh, he had drawn comics, right? He, he's actually he actually drew the second and third appearances of Iron Fist. Oh, okay. Um, which is to say that he bounced around mm -hmm. doing a lot of freelance penciling and inking in the seventies. Mm -hmm. um, I don't pick out Iron Fist as any particular example, but mm -hmm. you know, 
everyone know, knows who Iron Fist is now because right, yeah. because of that Netflix show. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, what I mean to say is that Larry Hama is considered uh, the GI Joe writer, mm-hmm. and uh, that he has done much more than that. Right. Right. So, um, so they go down the row because the editors have offices in a row, and each editor is asked. Um, we've got this. Uh, we've got this license for a, a toy comic called GI Joe. Do you want to? Do you want to write it? And each each editor says no. Mm-hmm. And Larry Hama is at the end of the row. <laughs> and one, he has no ego about this kind of thing. He just wants to work. Yep. And two, um, this was interesting to him. Uh, so he said yes. Hmm. So there's this meeting, and um, at, by that point, Hasbro had designed the first wave of figures, and, or I, I should say loosely. Hmm. There were, you know, about 10 slots for figures, um, and each one has uh, a function. You know, there's the commando, and there's the uh, heavy machine gunner, and there's the mortar launcher soldier. Mm-hmm. And there were no villains. And this makes sense from a G.I. Joe perspective, right? This sounds strange to us now because sort of every story now is, is good versus evil. Yeah. Every, you know, Harry Potter and Star Wars and uh, Jessica Jones and Pacific Rim, mm. you know, everything in popular culture is good versus evil. But in the 1960s and the 1970s, G.I. Joe had no villain army. Yeah. There is, there is no Dr. Claw. There is no uh, Goldfinger or what's the, what's the bad guy group in the James Bond movies? Spectre. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> so, um, you know, with, with Joe in the 60s, uh, I guess, I've never asked anyone, but either you sort of pretended that some of your action figures, some of your G.I. Joe action figures were bad guys, mm. or you, I don't know, imagined <laughs> them or mimed them, you know? It's like, oh, they're on the other side of the room, or they're outside. Right. Um, and then as they expanded the line and there were, you know, soldiers of the world, you know, there's mm. a, there's a British soldier and a, uh, a Russian soldier and a, a French soldier, maybe kids use them as the villains, but all the GI Joe figures in the sixties and seventies, none of them had code names. None of them had names. Yeah. There, there wasn't, you know, Bill and Rick and James or, uh, you know, uh, tough guy and master blaster and you know crazy face there's just what he did there's a there's an infantry soldier and there's a pilot and there's a um the guy who puts out a fire if a plane crashes who comes with this silver foil suit mm-hmm. uh, so um archie goodwin at this meeting uh suggested that there should be villains and threw out a name like Cobra and that stuck Hmm. and there is a there is a strong parallel if you look at the first issue the first year Mm -hmm. of G.I. Joe comic books from Marvel 
uh, between G.I. Joe and Cobra and Nick Fury and S.H.I.E.L.D. Mm. and the villains in S.H.I.E.L.D. Yeah. Hydra. Yeah. Yes, thank you. I've always wondered if there was a connection between Cobra and Hydra. It just like they basically just seem like mirrors of each other. So there, there's no there's no story connection. There's no continuity connection. But right. is one somewhat inspired by the other? Undoubtedly. Mm. But you know, in the same way that if if you came up with a story of a bunch of good guys and bad guys right now, you know, it's going to kind of look like Star Wars. Or it's going to kind of look like Harry Potter. That's true. Yeah. Or it's, or it's going to kind of look like Transformers because there are only so many you know, ideas. Yeah. Variations. Yeah. I think you're right too. Cause, um, I think what happened when, with, the uh, the real American hero Cobra is you had during the sixties and the seventies, James Bond was popular and he fought Spectre and there were uh, other little groups of, of these like covert dudes. Cause that's what Cobra was presented as that they were, they were covert. They'd infiltrate. They're very similar to Hydra. Uh, in the early seventies, DC had, uh, uh, a bad guy called Cobra that yes, led, yeah, that led a similar organization. And I think you're right that it's probably a bit of parallel development because that was in everybody's mind. The eighties, you had the cold war starting to get attention again. And that idea of spies and, and mm-hmm. like covert ops and spoiler operations was kind of in the public consciousness of the time. We Sometimes we forget because we're just so used to it, mm-hmm. but Cobra is international, mm-hmm. but it's it's nebulously so, right? Yeah. G.I. Joe is American, right? right? They're mm-hmm. a real American hero. <laughs> but, you know, Destro is from Scotland and... Yeah, no Scots. Uh, <laughs> and then I'm trying to remember, uh, is, is Major Blood... He's Australian. From, Australian, thank yeah. you. Um, you know, so, um, you know, in Firefly, I think his his toy background is shrouded in mystery, but it's, you know, here and there. Uh, and there's the Baroness. And um, and so, you know, Cobra Commander is in terms of the toy and the, the TV show shrouded in mystery. Mm-hmm. And in the comic book, it's revealed that he is a he's a homegrown terrorist. Yeah, he's he's a disgruntled American mm. who who was let down by the American dream. He's a used car salesman and he, he develops this fanatical following and turns it into this paramilitary organization over many years. Mm -hmm. Um, So uh, there's another, you know, part of what I love about GI Joe is if you squint, if you're looking at 1982 and 1983, you know, the Joes are green and Cobra's blue. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And if you're watching the show, you know, Lasers are red, lasers are blue. Um, you can very distinctly tell them apart. One of the things that I don't love about uh, the first live action film, G.I. Joe, The Rise of Cobra, is that all the Joes are in black armored suits and yeah. all of Cobra are in black armored suits. And and also Snake Eyes is all in black. So no one sticks out. Yeah. Mm. Well, there are many things to dislike about The Rise of Cobra. That's not the only one. That, that's 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 a whole separate uh, podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, because yeah, you mentioned the uh, the comic origin for Cobra Commander. I always thought that that was fantastic. That he was a used car salesman because it kind of explains some of his poor decisions. As I recall, too, the idea was that 
he originally started, it was supposed to be one of these like vaguely kind of nationalist, we have to take back the government kind of thing that you've been seeing a lot of in real life lately. And it got out of hand and he ended up becoming their leader because he didn't know how to turn it off. And then he got used to it. And then you had people like the Baroness and Destro that moved in and were kind of trying to assert what he was making, like what he had, he had created. What's so great about the, the Marvel run of GI Joe, Mm. which is it's 155 issues uh, 149 of them or 150 of them are written by Larry Hama. Yeah. Plus there's a spin-off series and a couple specials. So he wrote about 185 G.I. Joe stories between 82 and wow. 94. Mm-hmm. And starting uh, about six years ago, began writing this comic again when IDW picked up with issue 156 mm-hmm. and started publishing it monthly and it's about to hit issue 250. Oh wow, I um, didn't know that. So so for any G.I. Joe comic book fans out there, if you think back to uh, the 80s or the early 90s and you think, I sure love that G.I. Joe comic book, it's back and it's been back for a while. And mm-hmm. the story right now is very exciting. Um, but one of the things that's so great about uh, the G.I. Joe run from Marvel from 82 to 94 is that it was written almost all by one person. So it's right. remarkably consistent. Yeah. And, you know, you don't you don't get it happened more often than it happens less often now. But, you know, how often are there runs that are five, ten years long by one writer in comics? Yeah, not that often. Um but also, um, because uh, one of the weaknesses of that comic is that every year Hasra would dump, you know, <laughs> fifteen to forty new characters and vehicles right. on mm-hmm. onto the writer to introduce throughout the year, and that does sometimes uh, bog down the story. Yeah, but it also provides uh, this sort of, you know quarterly infusion of new ideas um, Hmm. so that Hama's always got something that he has to find a way to work into the series. Hmm. And, um, you know, I can be disappointed that, you know, after a couple of years, my favorite character isn't showing up as much and there are all these other new characters in the way. But um, looking back, I I see that more as a strength now than a weakness. Um, And, you know, also that's why there's a spinoff book for for those other thirty issues. There's so many characters. There'll mm. be a second book where I can cram some of these other characters and tell some additional stories. Right. Yeah. And he did a good job. Like a lot of the stuff in the Marvel run uh, had a very slow burn. That he would set things up and actually take time to develop them. Because I I can remember um, the ones that stick out for me was the whole Cobra Island thing. That kind of yeah. that that played in the background for a few issues, and then they have that big explosion where they create an artificial island in international territory, and you're like, oh, that's what that other stuff was. And then, yeah, mo- sorry, go ahead. Oh no, go ahead. Oh well, most of that is made up on the fly. Hama would not plot ahead of time. He he only knew he he says this in lots of interviews, so I, I'm not revealing anything um, too revelatory, but he. 
he works on the page that he's he's writing and he doesn't know what's going to happen on the next page <laughs> which means he also doesn't know what's going to happen in the next issue or the next issue so G.I. So, Joe was the the entire run was basically just him doing comic improv yeah wow <laughs> now so so to some extent um so those advertisements mm-hmm. right we i had i had mentioned the ad that premieres in uh, early 82, which is a, a fully animated commercial for issue one. And what the ad agency and its animation company, uh, Sunbow Productions, mm-hmm. did starting in 82 was four commercials a year, one each quarter, where it's 30 seconds of animation and it is specifically advertising that month's issue of the Marvel comic book. Mm. Uh, it's not for the toys. You don't see kids or their hands. It's just um, animation of characters and vehicles. And the end image is that month's cover. Mm-hmm. And so four times a year, Larry Hama had to write an issue using the characters and vehicles and to a great extent, the situations that had been concepted for that commercial. Hmm. So the the part of why no one wanted to going back to you know asking all the editors in the office mm-hmm. part of why no one wanted to do this book was because one uh toy comics in 1981 don't last very long mm-hmm. um they don't have a lot of uh clout you know it's doing a thing for kids mm. um and you have to coordinate with with the licensee. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you know, Marvel would send the scripts and I think photocopies of the pencil artwork, maybe also the inks. I think certainly at the beginning it was it was both. I think later on, maybe just the pencils, but I don't know for certain. But certainly the scripts mm-hmm. and Hasbro marketing would approve them, or you know maybe make some light notes and send it back. And all this just takes time. If you're writing Daredevil, right, you only have to coordinate with two people, your editor and the artist. Mm-hmm. But if you're writing G.I. Joe, it's like, how are we going to send this to Rhode Island? And then once a year, you have to go there so they can show you the new toys, which maybe I, I shouldn't phrase that as, as a chore. You, know, you get to go there so mm-hmm. they can show you the new toys. Because mm-hmm. um, the flip side is, if you are writing G.I. Joe or you're the artist who's drawing G.I. Joe, you're you're working on the only comic book that Marvel publishes that is advertised on television. Yeah. That that has almost never happened. That happened one other time in the uh mid nineties mm-hmm. with a different publisher. Um and I guess DC Comics was was offering up an advertisement, sort of a generic advertisement that comic book stores could slap their name on yeah. at the end mm-hmm. in the mid in the mid to late nineties. But in terms of specifically advertising one title, right? That was huge. Mm-hmm. Huh. Cause it, it works a little weird with the Marvel thing. Cause um, what I'd heard Marvel did have one, one tie in that wasn't star Wars that did really well. And it was the Micronauts. Hmm. And the reason that Hasbro went to Marvel was cause the Micronauts comic was doing so well at different times. It was one of Marvel's top selling books, but the weird thing is the comic only borrowed very lightly from the toy line. 
Yeah. Like, so, go ahead. You you, pro- you probably know more about Migo and Micronauts than I do. Yeah. Well, little. Um, it was it because what 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 I'd heard happened there was it was um because it was uh Herb Trimp and Michael Golden were like the guys that worked on the uh the the first few Micronauts and. The toys came out in 76, Christmas 76. They were just before Star Wars. Um, they were so impressed, they wrote to Migo and said, we'd like to do a story based on these characters. And Migo sent them like a ton of of uh, a ton of designs and notes, a lot of which I'm suspecting were actually from the Japanese Microman, which is what the Micronauts toy line originally was. And they kind of picked and chose and did their comic. It took off. And then Hasbro said, we'd like to kind of do something like that. But Hasbro, what you had, I think, with the um, the Marvel Hasbro thing was the beginning of the idea that the company that created the toy and the company that did the, the tie-ins actually worked together. Before that, you kind of just license out your your product and whoever got it would do whatever with it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's, that's helpful. I think I, I think I had that idea vaguely swirling in the back of my head. Um, but hearing you say it, um, I'm smiling and nodding my head. (laughs) That would probably be also why the original Star Wars comics were definitely not approved by Lucasfilm. They, well, they, they were, I think they were approved, but there was so little in the way of, uh, like an office for oversight in licensing, mm. I assume, in 1977 at mm. it, at Lucasfilm that, um, you know, anything. It's like, oh, you're going to do comics for us? Great, do comics for us. Mm. Yeah, there there were caveats when Marvel got the uh, the Star Wars property. Because again, this idea of, of one company coordinating everything was, was a new idea. Uh, what happened with Star Wars... The only real limits they had was when they did the first six books, they were working off of the script and the not the movie. Because I think number one and two came out before the movie. And that's why deleted scenes are in the comic. And they had a stipend that the main characters couldn't meet up during the comic. Mm-hmm. That was the only thing I really remember Lucas uh, hammering on them. So you couldn't have like Han Solo fight Darth Vader. Because they didn't want to screw anything up for the uh, the later movies, and that's why like they introduced a lot of side characters and new characters for the comic because you couldn't really do anything with the main ones from the movie. Yeah, these these relationships with these properties published by Marvel varies case by case in another interesting way. The Micronauts characters are in the Marvel universe, and they meet Marvel characters. Mm-hmm. The G.I. Joe comic book storyline is its own universe. When when a year later, um, Marvel publishes a Transformers miniseries, Spider-Man shows up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And immediately, the Transformers are in the Marvel universe. Yep. And then the miniseries does so well, they greenlight it as a, as a, as a monthly. So four issues and then they take a month or two off and then they just publish issue five and it continues. And right then everyone just quietly uh, agrees that it's not a part of the Marvel yep. universe. Yeah. Well, that's another messy one too, because there is an exception to that. And that was the character of circuit breaker. 
Yeah, it's 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 messy. Yeah. Um, and then uh, you know, Death's Head shows showing up in the in the UK comics. Yep. Um, there there's a little bit of back and forth, and um, as as Titan and as IDW have republished the Marvel '80s run. Um, some th- issues have been included or haven't been included because, mm. say, Spider-Man shows up. Um, and, uh, I mean, my my simple reason for being most appreciative that the G.I. Joe comic book is not in the Marvel Universe is because that keeps it more grounded. Yeah. Mm. You know, if Galactus is going to show up and eat us, then, <laughs> you know, Cobra's schemes don't seem as, um, as grand. Um mm. We should probably switch over and talk about the toy because mm. I feel like I feel like I'm revealing my bias uh, as as a comic book guy because I've been going on and on about the the GI Joe comics and you know any of my GI Joe friends who are more on the toy side listening to this right now are thinking talk about the toys. <laughs> okay, let's talk about the toys then. We'll talk. We'll get to the animated series as well probably soon. Here's a question. Was Duke one of the original G.I. Joe toys? No, he shows up in the second year. Yeah. Okay. Uh, the, the the character Hawk, mm-hmm. who in the first year of toys has blonde hair and is in all green. Sometimes he and Duke, uh, f- it's easy to get them mixed up because oh, okay. they seem so analogous. Because for the first couple of years these two guys are in charge and they look, if you squint similar, um, but Hawk is a higher rank, you know, Duke's a first sergeant. So he's in charge of a, of a smaller group of guys. Um, but uh, in the first year of the comic, I guess the first year and a half, Duke doesn't show up. Mm-hmm. Hawk's in charge. Right. But because there is no TV show in 1982, mm. Hawk doesn't make any kind of impression in the animation of G.I. Joe. And yeah. it's those first five episodes in September of 83 mm-hmm. with this initial miniseries where Duke is the main character, uh, where he makes a big splash. And I think anyone who watched the show more than they read the comic mm-hmm. is probably a bigger fan of Duke because uh, he's such an, an integral part of the first two years of the cartoon. And... Right. Um, he is yeah. not as important in year two and three of the comic book. Yeah, wasn't wasn't Duke the second uh, mail-in figure? Yes, yes. Well, once again, all my friends who collect the toys are thinking, <laughs> "Why are you pausing, Tim? You should know that." Uh, so I'll, I'll just I'll just admit it. Uh, I I know more about the Joe comic and animation than I do the toy. Uh, I know a good chunk about the toy but yeah so duke duke's a mail-in in the second year mm-hmm. and he shows up in the third year at retail in the toy line so so yeah, out of curiosity what was the first mail-in figure cobra commander oh mm-hmm. uh with with his with his hood oh, okay um at retail uh you can buy him in stores with the silver mask yeah um, but if you sent you know a dollar and a flag point or something like that two flag points and a dollar uh hasbro in 1982, 1983, we'll mail you this other version of Cobra Commander. And that Cobra Commander as a mail-in figure was available for several years. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. There were, there were, there were a few, cause um, I think was it 85 or 86. Uh, they were trying to clear out stock and you could send a couple flag points in the book and get a hiss tank. Yeah. The, the, 
the direct mail segment of Hasbro selling GI Joe to the consumer is um, is a wonderful supplement to the toy history of GI Joe at retail, mm-hmm. where Hasbro put together these very small but gorgeous catalogs that yeah. were you know three inches by three inches and folded. And there'd be photos of various vehicles and figures that had been at retail the year before or three years before. And there'd be a story written out for why this particular combination of figures needs to go on this mission to Hmm. stop these Cobras using this vehicle. And um, sometimes there'd be a painting or an illustration as sort of a cover image for these um, little, very small catalogs that would come packed with um, the boxed vehicles or really, really tiny ones um, that would come uh, behind the figures in their uh, carded packaging. And uh, for many years, Hasbro had a robust direct mail program mm-hmm. for G.I. Joe. And yes, a lot of it was to clear out um, extra stock, but there were also some really amazing innovations like in 1987, um, Hasbro had a figure. Uh, it's a GI Joe character. He's wearing gloves and a helmet, so you oh. don't know what his complexion or his hair looks like. Which is to say, he could be anyone. Mm-hmm. And uh, Hasbro had printed up. Um, it's a one-page ad in comics. It's a uh, it's a it's a it's a page in one of these little uh, catalogs. Um, there might have even been like individual sheets that you could pick up at toy stores, um, like a, an advertising slick. And you check off boxes um, answering sort of multiple choice questions. And you'd pick one of four answers for each descriptive attribute of this G.I. Joe character that you were. You picked mm-hmm. his oh. code name, his specialty, and what he's like. And then, you know, six to eight weeks later, um, Hasbro sends you this figure who is... Um, classified steel brigade mm-hmm. and so it's it's the idea is all the kids all the fans all the real boys and girls who buy gi joe toys are joining the steel brigade right so it's like it's like gi joe has this additional army of uh i don't want to say generic because they all look the same but they're individual characters mm-hmm. uh recruits um and my brother and i of course did this um, my brother's figure was called Maverick, and this is because of Top Gun, <laughs> but a year or two before there is actually a G.I. Joe character named Maverick. Mm. And mine was codenamed Black Magic, and I had checked off all the boxes that made mine more like a ninja mm-hmm. um, because I thought that was cool, but you know, he's not dressed at all like a ninja. He's got, you know, combat boots and uh, beige pants and a, you know, blue. Uh, vest and a silver helmet. Um, but in terms of giving kids ownership mm-hmm. over their relationship with G.I. Joe and for not a lot of money at all, mm-hmm. right? And this this program ran for several years and the figure went through a couple changes. There were some color changes and then late in the line, there was even a sort of make your own Cobra. Hmm. Um, and this character doesn't show up in the comic book and is not advertised on television, but it's innovative and mm-hmm. fun. Mm. Yeah. I have a funny story about that. 
um about the uh the the character makeup because um i used to be friends with uh, bill sakura he's he's the guy who did the uh the old uh tomart's action figure guide oh cool okay and he was a funny guy he had a he he, he had a bet with his mailman because he had filled that form out and he was waiting for the figure and the mailman knew that he was this huge toy collector and he's always getting weird stuff and he said yeah i got this figure coming he's a new gi joe guy his name is dirty prick and the mailman was like, no way, they'd never call a character that. And that was his. His was, was Dirty Prick, and he had this big write-up about what a <laughs> tough guy he was, and everybody was afraid of him and stuff. I, uh, I, I, should, I should ask one of the G.I. Joe groups on Facebook. Um, I'd love to collect a big list of <laughs> kids' code names. Mm-hmm. I'm amazed uh, not... they accepted that as a code name. <laughs> it's... it's... As, as, isn't there? Isn't there at the at the DMV or the uh, the RMV? Um, isn't there there? If you get vanity license plates, aren't there many combinations of letters that you cannot yes. get on your license plates? Yes, there, there are. But um, say when Hasbro did their their customizable figures, this was probably way before you had a lot of like uh, automation and digital printing. So it was probably people actually doing the editing. And if you happen to get that one guy who's just really tired of his job or this just strikes him as really funny, no, nobody else is going to see it other than the guy who receives it. So he's and nobody's going to know he was the guy that printed it up. So why not? <laughs> the uh, the the file card that comes with the figure mm-hmm. is eight and a half by 11 and it's got the same. Uh, painting of the character that was on the initial sort of offer uh, catalog. And then all the information has been printed with a dot matrix printer on this. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's not cardstock, but it's a slightly heavy sort of gray paper. And uh, if you Google, you know, G.I. Joe Steel Brigade, you'll probably come up with someone who has scanned their Steel Brigade uh, file card. And um, I don't know... As a kid in 1986, did I say? Um, it was 87. I don't know. I was actually, it was 87. I was actually disappointed when my figure came in the mail because I had assumed that somehow Hasbro would read my mind and would know <laughs> that my figure should be Caucasian and have blonde hair and maybe even look like. Uh, you know, a, a generic karate guy in the 1980s, mm. like, you know, like the Cobra Kai uh, kids at the end of the Karate Kid, right. like, you know, wearing a basic black karate uniform. Because in <laughs> my mind, that's what black magic looked like. Mm. And of course, when I open the package, it's the silver helmet with the, the beige pants and the black boots, which is what they showed you mm. when you sent away Um but it, it took me a little while to sort of accept that this toy company, you know, five states away, couldn't read my mind. Mm. Um, and um, I I remember thinking a year or two later, well, there should have been some additional level of customization. They should have been, you know, you should have been able to pick one of five heads or one of five torsos. And, mm. you know, that is prohibitively expensive. Um, so I'm I'm just going to... Uh, look at this with grown-up eyes, and and mm-hmm. admit that what Hasra did was was really striking for the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because because what you're mentioning there, that was kind of what um, 
if you go back to to say um the 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 adventure team gi joes or the um when Migo did action jackson they would do um they didn't have characters per se but they would do like say you'd have white guy white guy with blonde hair white guy with beard black dude you know asian dude they do the 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 generic kind of phenotypes and i i had heard it was because of exactly um they were trying to assuage the kind of disappointment that you felt as a child that idea that you could read more of of you or whoever you pictured this character to be into the figure yeah i i as as a caucasian male uh who was buying gi joe and absorbing the the tv show um most of the joes looked like me Mm -hmm. and um if hasbro had had its way there would have been no female characters because mm. this was a traditional boys toy mm. and uh, boys didn't buy the female action figure characters yeah. very much. So Hasbro would short pack them. Mm. Um, I mean, the second female figure cover girl, right? Hasbro said, all right, we'll put her in a tank. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that way sort of kids have to get the figure. There's no way they can't buy her. If they want the tank, they have to get this character. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, there are female characters in the G.I. Joe toy line because of the comic book and the TV show. Okay. In in the 1980s, uh, if the show was on a network, it was on ABC, CBS, or CB, uh, NBC, or if the show was syndicated and was, you know, sold – uh, market by market and city by city. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in my neighborhood, it was on the channel that eventually became Fox. But in my friend's neighborhood, a couple of states away, it was on the, you know, local station that eventually became uh, UPN. Mm-hmm. Um, in other words, independence. Right. Thank you. So um, whether it was going to be on a network or in syndication, um, the show was not going to be accepted if it was all men. Mm-hmm. So there needed to be um, some diversity um, okay. and not just, not just white guys. Um, same thing for the comic. Yeah. So this is where Scarlet comes from. And this is why every year or two, you know, uh, Covergirl, the Baroness, uh, uh, Jinx, Zorana, um, and, uh, you know, Hasro did it uh, uh, dutifully um, and, uh, there is a this is this is beyond the purview of my book, but you know there are certainly larger discussions to be had about um, you know representation in you know children's fiction. Yeah. Um, you know, at the time, I thought that GI Joe was awfully um, was awfully diverse. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, there's this this one black guy every year, and <laughs> uh, you know, some of these characters are Latino and. Uh, there's a woman every second or third year. Um, mm-hmm. One of the things that's so great about uh, the comic book is that the female characters, um, it is never a big deal that mm-hmm. they're there or on the team. Yeah. And uh, and I always felt that way about the female characters on the show as well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. A friend of mine uh, who knows I'm a really big G.I. Joe fan. We were talking last year and she said, oh, I didn't like that show. It was sexist. And mm-hmm. I said, oh, no, it wasn't. I get all defensive. <laughs> um, and I was sort of racking my brain for 
what scene or portrayal um, could have uh, convinced her that. And I thought maybe she's just remembering wrong. You know, how well do you remember a show from Mm. 25 years ago? Mm -hmm. Um, And, uh, and I realized it may be a little bit too baked into the DNA of this particular version of GI Joe where, uh, you know, Lady J, mm-hmm. her code name is Lady J. Right. Uh, and, you know, in, in the second live action movie, um, in G.I. Joe Retaliation, this character is just named J. Mm-hmm. And it took a long time for me to, you know, when the second movie came out, I thought they shouldn't change her name. And then I thought, oh, yeah, they probably should. Because if you had a Joe named, uh, you know, Doughboy mm-hmm. or Boy Wonder or... Uh, man, something manpower. Uh-huh. Um, that that would be awkward, and I would wonder why that's getting called out. Except that one thought, though, lady in this case is a title. It's like sir. That would be like having a Joe named Sir Bill or something like that, or Sir Kay. It mm-hmm. technically is only functioning there as a title. It's not functioning as a. This is a woman specifically, or any more than saying Sir Bill would be a man. Uh, that's true. That's true. Um, I, I, I think in this case, I would need to sit down and watch several episodes with my friend and have a deeper discussion, uh, mm. to see if there's something obvious or subtle that I'm missing. I do think there's a chance that my friend is just sort of half remembering something from 25 years ago, but, um, y- uh, you know, the way that, that discussions of gender portrayals mm. are these days, if a friend of mine says, um, uh, you know, I have a problem with how a character is portrayed in this fiction, mm. um, I'm much more uh, likely and eager to listen right. oh, and yeah. try and understand. Whereas mm. if I was Good 10, idea. I would say, if I was 10, I would say, no, this is mine. Don't ruin my thing. <laughs> no, well, here's an interesting side question, though, and I'm not trying to start a fight or anything, but... Um, did the female characters, cover girl aside because she came with a tank, um, actually sell for Hasbro? Like, were they basically just, okay, we've got to do this, and so let's put it, let's short pack them, and let's just hope they sell? Or did they actually sell? They were the lowest sellers. Mm. Right. So, mm. you know, we, we, there, there could be a chicken and egg discussion, you know, like, Hasra wasn't advertising more or mm. the culture should have caught up with this so that Hasro's audience wasn't in a position where they were less interested in these characters. Mm. Uh, but the fact is these characters did not sell as much. Right. Well, that goes with most toy lines. Um, as you know, there's that great protest that says, you know, that uh, the toy companies should be making as many female action figures as possible. And then the female action figures, based on what you, not just what you said, I've heard from other sources, they literally sit there on the shelf and no one buys them. I think in terms of this larger discussion, um, I I don't follow action figures as much as I did uh, 10, 15 years ago. I'm I'm not so much a toy collector Mm. now, but when I go to comic book conventions, um, whether it's sort of the mainstream ones like mm-hmm. New York Comic Con that's very much about big publishers and movies or really small indie focused comic conventions like uh, Mice or SPX or mm-hmm. Mocha. I see a much better balance of gender than I did 
15, 20 years ago. And when I go to uh, the Transformers convention and the G.I. Joe convention and Hascon, the Hasbro convention mm. last September, similarly, I see um, a much bigger variety mm, of um, not just gender, but age. And I think some of this is uh, this larger cultural trend of the mainstreaming of all of these uh, sort of nerd cultures mm. video games comic books animation anime toys um uh, fan art cosplay um and i think uh but but you know i mean at, at retail um there is still a division maybe less so in some stores but there's still a division between where the boys action figures are and you know, the, I mean, the, the Barbie aisle, mm. right? This mm -hmm. is this big blast of pink. Mm -hmm. uh, actually, you know that that might be a dated reference because I'm thinking of Toys R Us in the '80s, and I have no, not spent no, a lot it's of time. still a giant yeah. blast of pink. I had to go yeah. toy shopping on over the Christmas holiday. It is so much pink that your brain wants to just shut down. So you know, some of this is. Um, I mean, it's not just toys. It's uh, it's 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 publishing. It's it's decisions that retailers are making mm. um and well, yeah i mean here no and i do think that it's that the, the, the it is becoming more balanced and that that that's great but anyone who wants to see something really interesting type in star wars toys not or sorry type in uh what's the new start last jedi toys not selling into youtube and you will find people going around to toy departments and literally looking at the all the toys you know they're all discounted at this point and it's just piles of the female action figures and most of the boy well basically to be blunt the male ones are almost all gone it's just literally piles of the female ones because you know as much as um there's that you know there should be more representation which i agree with i think there should be but here's the problem the people who are saying that there should be more representation aren't going and buying the toys they're not showing up to actually pay pay the money and buy them. Um, they may, as, they may as, be going to the cons, but they're not showing up to buy them. I wish they were. I you know I think that would be amazing. But you can't trash you know businesses, toy companies. Sorry, this is a personal thing. You can't trash them <laughs> for not making female toys if you're not going and buying them. But that's what happens. Is that they they endlessly go on about you know when. Force Awakens came out and, you know, they didn't make a Ray toy or they delayed it a little bit. You know, there was all hell to pay for Disney and everything. Yet they, when she came out, they still didn't sell very well. They still didn't, you know, the people who were raising hell on the internet weren't willing to actually put their money where their mouth was. And that bothers me quite a bit, actually. It's like, if you want something, you pay for it. Otherwise, you don't really deserve it. And sorry, that's my rant. I'm sorry, I just derailed everything. I apologize. Um, well, no, there's it. Hmm? It fits in because there's a caveat when it comes to toys about that. Hmm? Um, because when you when you had the idea of the action figure came out mm -hmm. back in the '60s, you made a very strong distinction that lasted a long time. That these are for boys, these are for girls. Hmm. Uh, when the real American hero came out, that distinction was still pretty strong. That there were boy toys, there were girl toys. G.I. Joe was a boy toy. Boys felt awkward playing with a female character. When you got to the 90s, uh, the toy market got taken over by speculators. 
And what happened when you go back to your old action figures from the 70s or the 80s, because the female characters didn't sell as well, they'd be underproduced, they wouldn't sell, they'd just be disposed of. They were the hard ones to get. They became the chase figures. It created this weird artificial desire for the female character of the male-oriented toy line. When you get to the 90s into the 2000s, you saw a lot of a lot of production of more female characters and toys because that's what everybody, the collectors, the speculators, mm-hmm. uh, the companies, thought people were after. Because from the older lines, those had become the chase figures right. because of the rareness. Hmm. Um, when you get into like modern times, toys have kind of stopped being a collectible. And like, I mean, like out of the gate. Old stuff is still collector's items, but they're not produce. They're producing new toys as toys, and you're kind of seeing a weird thing that we've gone back to this division that there are boys' toys, there are girls' toys. Um, Star Wars being a big nerdly property, um, historically is considered a boy thing. It's got spaceships in it. Um, for the the rampant anger and rage of the internet, Star Wars is a fertile battleground because it's it's well known. But if you look at the toy stores, you're starting to see there are girl-oriented action figures that are mm-hmm. action figures. They're poseable. They have weapons. They have villains. But their separate lines aimed specifically at girls, even though they're not really that different from the boy ones. Hmm. So there's that weird caveat that if you look at an established property like Star Wars, the female characters aren't selling well, but then you look, you have things like, I think the, the Mysticons are ones that just came out that are girls action figures and they're action figures. And those seem to be doing fairly well. Cause you're seeing more and more of that. And you're seeing more of the, uh, the shows and that aimed at them. And I think part of why that happened was cause in the late nineties, going into the two thousands, when our comic industry folded and the Japanese stuff took over, because it was kind of a new and different thing, a lot of it didn't have those prejudices. And like we've mentioned on mm. the show, you had a lot of like what in Japan would be a boys action series would come over here and almost half of the audience would be female because it didn't come over here with that distinction. We didn't know, oh, this is a boys show. This is even the idea of shonen. Shonen means like young boy, but people didn't know that what it meant so they just thought well this has action and it's got soap opera stuff and it's got characters so i guess anybody can read it and anybody did and i think that's kind of what what blurred that line hmm. back back in the day hmm. I'm, I'm glad to hear that there are actually some female um action figure lines coming out that are selling well that's good to hear hmm. um but it because that you know that just bothers me if you're if you're going to uh, if you're going to demand something you have to actually show up and buy it or support it as the case may be mm. uh, that's the only way real change is going to happen because the market doesn't care it just cares about the money in the end yeah um did did the two of you watch the gi joe animated series of course oh yeah yeah the the real Every american day. yeah the the real american hero stuff for for me and i think for rob the f- I, I got really into the first couple lines of the toys, but it was sort of at the point where I stopped playing with toys, but mm. I never totally lost interest in stuff like I loved the comic and the TV show and that I was a little older. So I was more into like the characters in the story than than just the toys. So I was a Transformers fan 
so a major Transformers fan. So <laughs> I um, I cared more about if it didn't involve giant robots, I didn't care. But you know, GI Joe was on next to the Transformers, so of course I watched every episode dutifully. Mm. So what's what's great about both the comic book and also the show is that they are well written mm-hmm. and yep. um and I, I don't say that as a biased mega fan. Um the G.I. Joe comic book ages better than a lot of what Marvel was publishing at the same time. I believe that. And and the G.I. Joe animated series ages better than many cartoons that were on between 82 and 87 or 83 and 87 and um that has to do with writing mm-hmm. and uh to a lesser extent uh the the budget that the hasbro and the ad agency and its animation company were willing to put up for the show mm-hmm. so the the first 15 episodes of the gi joe cartoon are written by ron friedman mm-hmm. and uh Ron had written – I'm calling him by his first name because I have met him. <laughs> right. uh, but I, I should probably use his last name because I don't want to seem overly familiar. No, it's okay. You can call him Ron. Well, that's, uh, I'm giving so, you permission. I don't know about him. <laughs> uh, this, is some, this is something I tell my students. Um, you know, if, if, if we watch a film and then we talk about it after, I say, you can't use the filmmaker's first name mm. because you don't know them and you're not friends. Mm. You should use the filmmaker's last name. Yep, I told them that. Um, so uh, so Friedman had written for a live action television in the 70s and the early 80s. And the producers at uh, Griffin Bacall, which would be Griffin and Bacall, right? So the, the guys who mm-hmm. owned the ad agency, who therefore also owned the animation company, um, Sunbow Productions, they were specifically looking for someone who had not been writing TV cartoons because in the 1970s, TV animation in America was at a uh, particularly low point. Mm. Um, Sort of everything about it was, um, was in a low place. So, you know, Walt Disney had died um, in the sixties and, uh, the features that came out from his company um, without his guiding hand were um, good, but not uh, as good as the peak work. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And then um, budgets were getting cut. So you have uh, less grand animated features like uh, Robin Hood or um, Fox and the Hound. Um, TV cartoons on in America in the 70s, you know, there's all this just really repetitive, limited, stale, stiff, inactive, like Hanna-Barbera stuff. And filmation. Um, uh, <laughs> and, and filmation where, um, because the the networks mm-hmm. um, were so careful about kids um, seeing something on TV and then imitating it and then mm-hmm. injuring themselves and then their parents would sue. Right, mm-hmm. TV animation had been beaten down for decades yeah. by this sort of boogeyman specter of, quote, violence. Mm-hmm. And TV animation had never been violent. TV mm-hmm. animation at the very beginning was all stuff that had been shown in movie theaters, right? Yeah. So 
uh, as soon as broadcasting starts, um, you have these networks in the 50s and 60s that need to fill a schedule. And, you know, this isn't even 24 hours, mm. but, um, and immediately they start mining back catalogs of studios for movies and animation, right? Yeah. So, you know, part of why my generation knows who Bugs Bunny is and the generation after me is because Looney Tunes were run on television continuously from the 60s until the early 2000s. Yep. Yeah. You know, first first on ABC in primetime and then on ABC Saturday mornings and then on Cartoon Network by the uh, late 90s or 2000s and then I think Boomerang. Um, so in the 60s and 70s, uh, theatrical shorts like Tom and Jerry and uh, Bugs Bunny um, were packaged as half hours and hours and shown on TV. And some of that stuff has, you know, explosions and anvils landing on people. Yeah. Um, but there was, from the beginning, this cultural uh, fear that kids would watch TV and behave badly because kids did not have agency and could mm. not make decisions and did not have good judgment. Yeah. And so into the 60s and 70s, ABC, CBS, and NBC um, well uh, wielded tight control with the animation studios that they would partner with because uh, it was the networks that were um, running the shows and it was either networks that were paying for them or partially paying for them uh, in conjunction with a sponsor, you know, like Quaker Oats or Kellogg's <laughs> or, mm, uh, you know, some yeah. soap company. And so all these cartoons in the 60s and 70s, um, you know, think about Super Friends. Like, do you remember that Justice League show where nothing happens? Mm, yep. <laughs> right? Like, that's it in a sentence. Mm. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, you have stuff like Scooby-Doo, which, you know, maybe a few episodes at the very beginning are fun and funny and quirky. But... I don't have a lot of patience for that show year after year and reinvention after reinvention mm -hmm. where there's just a lot of standing around. And in terms of the pace of the drama, the pace of the humor, it's, it's slow. It's no fun to watch. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so GI Joe comes along. I should step back. So He-Man comes along mm -hmm. and He-Man's the first show, which is going to be syndic. This is 1983. Mm -hmm. It's going to be syndicated. And there are going to be 65 episodes of it. Mm. And this really creates this new market for TV animation. Because if you're not going to be on NBC, ABC, or CBS, uh, shows that were on the networks were only on Saturday morning. Saturday morning had become the only place for cartoons, the only place for kid animation, which meant it was a ghetto. Because yeah. it wasn't very good mm -hmm. and it wasn't respected. And it was ruled by fear. Mm -hmm. um, Filmation yeah. did some pretty good work uh, in spite of all of these limitations. And that has a lot to do with uh, Lou Scheimer, who was in charge at Filmation. He had come up in TV animation. He had not mm -hmm. come from theatrical animation. So it was not uh, such a huge um, shift for him. Whereas like Hannah and Barbara had directed Tom and Jerry shorts mm -hmm. and for MGM and now they were Hanna-Barbera making TV animation and they had to make all these uh, changes to how they, how they operated. So um, He-Man offers this huge amount of work for the animators at Filmation 
And Filmation went to great lengths to keep all of its work in the States, which was amazing. Mm-hmm. You know, you can poke fun at uh, He-Man and Brave Star and She-Ra for being stiff. Um, but those shows put a lot of people uh, to work. Um, yeah. So uh, so G.I. Joe is the second, you know, toy um, action mm. show in syndication, half mm-hmm. hours. Um, so... Uh, the producers out of New York are looking for a writer who had not come from TV animation Mm. because they wanted someone who had written for adults who had written, you know, real action. Um, and they didn't want someone who, uh, was sort of in this, in the, in the seventies and eighties, in the early eighties, um, saying that you wrote for TV animation in America, that, that was like telling people in the sixties and seventies that you drew comic books. Mm. (laughs) Like, like that's embarrassing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Like in the, in the forties and fifties and sixties, if you drew comic strips for the newspaper, that was a big deal. Yeah. Uh, and that was, that was desirable. So uh, in Ron Friedman, they found this writer who mm-hmm. was doing really big action and, uh, and he, he worked hard to give uh, this really big cast of characters in these first five episodes uh, distinct personalities mm-hmm. and um, I see a real difference in his 15 episodes um, as compared to the episodes that come later so mm-hmm. in 83 there's a five part miniseries this is this is another first for G.I. Joe mm. G.I. Joe is the first uh, animated miniseries yeah so you know TV had had some miniseries uh What's the Civil War one? Is it North and South? North and South, yeah. Yeah. And then uh, Roots and yeah. uh, uh, Shogun yeah. and some others that I'm not thinking of. So um, so in 83, and this is in large response to the reaction to those commercials mm-hmm. from 82. How, and and how, can we, how, we, how can we continue to expand this brand and tell these stories? Mm. So... Um, uh, Sunbow Productions, this animation company in New York, uh, which had been doing this show that was a lot like Sesame Street called The Great Space Coaster. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, they pick Marvel Productions as their animation partner. And Marvel Productions is the animation half of Marvel Comics, mm-hmm. right? Marvel right. Comics is in New York. Marvel Productions is in uh, Los Angeles, right? Hasbro's already partnered with Marvel Comics for the comics, so this all makes sense. So... Um, the show has a really healthy budget. The animation's really wonderful. Um, the voice director, Wally Burr, is wonderful. The casting is wonderful. Mm. Um, these are these are not just good voice actors. These are good actors. Mm. These are people who can perform and who have interesting voices. Mm-hmm. Um, the music is great. Mm. Everything about this show uh, is great. Um, so it's really popular, and in 84... Uh, they make another five-part miniseries also written by Ron Friedman, and this mm-hmm. now gets to introduce another sort of two years of characters. Um, and at this point, the goal now is to strip it. And stripping a show means running it in syndication mm-hmm. with an order with an order of 65 episodes. Mm-hmm. And yep. that, that number seems like a fantasy to us now because budgets are so so much smaller and the audience is so fractured. Yeah. But in the 1980s, if you wanted a show to run five days a week, 
the number was 65 episodes. Which is 13 um, weeks of – or five episodes a week. Yeah. Right. So you, you so you have a rerun. You, you, so you won't have a rerun uh, until three months from now. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so for 85, um, there are now enough episodes that with the first 10 – they can run the show five days a week. So in, in the fall, mm-hmm. that starts. And uh, the 1985 season begins with another five-part miniseries, mm-hmm. hmm. uh, which is also written by Ron Friedman. And Friedman has a, um, a particular hmm. brand of um, – there's a little bit of – there is a fantastical element mm-hmm. to his G.I. Joe – Mm-hmm. which is not as visible in the episodes that come after. Um, some of it is, uh, I think everyone is still sort of swimming in the Star Wars right. soup. Mm-hmm. Um, some of it is, and I've heard this from the head marketing guy who was at Hasbro um, in the 80s, Bob Prupus, that, that the ad agency just kept saying, pushing for for you know sci-fi and Star Wars and some of Rhode Island, some of Hasbro kept pushing back. No, 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 military, military. Right. Um, and some of it is, I think, just how Ron Friedman as a writer reacted to mm. these characters and scenarios. Because right. G.I. Joe is pretty sci-fi. Yep. Mm-hmm. Right? We can say it's realistic. It's not. We can say it's grounded. It's grounded. But, um, you know, there are all these, there are all these un, you know, jetpacks. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. you know, one of the first year characters is a laser trooper. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the Cobra Hiss, is, which, which is a gorgeous design for a tank. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you, you wouldn't build a tank like that. No. Um, the, <laughs> these, are, these are, you know, military-inspired fantasy uh, constructs. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, you know, in the first 15 episodes, there are monsters and it's really easy to launch a space shuttle and it's mm-hmm. really easy to be an astronaut in outer space and it's mm-hmm. um it's really easy to control the weather with just this device that doesn't need a lot of explaining mm-hmm. um and it's really easy to infiltrate gi joe headquarters and steal something um so friedman stuff is less and again i use this word uh cautiously mm-hmm. real realistic mm-hmm. um and what you have starting in 85 is now there are so many episodes and Friedman is not interested in writing many, many episodes, right? Because hmm. to get another 50 episodes ready for the fall in, in, the, re- in, in the first half of 1985, in the, in the third quarter of 1985, hmm. the pipeline is like finishing a script a week. Yeah. Right. I mean, think about it. There's 52 weeks in a year and you already have 10 episodes. And by the fall, we need to have 65 episodes. So we need 50 more episodes. Yep. Uh, wow. That's the rough math. So uh, this wonderful writer uh, is story editor for 1985 for what is sort of the proper season one. Mm-hmm. And his name is Steve Gerber. Mm-hmm. S- Steve Gerber had gotten into uh, – television animation because he had gotten out of comic books because uh, Gerber had created uh, with an artist named Val Mayerick, Howard the Duck. Mm -hmm. And 
Nowadays, in 2018, right, Howard the Duck is sort of a beloved Marvel character, and he has those cameos in the Guardians of the Galaxy movies, Mm -hmm. and he's shown up in some of the video games, and there's an action figure, and there's a a Funko Pop. Mm -hmm. Um, In the 70s, Howard the Duck is this this really thoughtful, smart, uh, social satire. Mm-hmm. Uh, comic book that Marvel publishes for a couple years written by Steve Gerber and he's poking fun at everything mm-hmm. and Marvel in the 70s was not the creative uh, leading light that it had been in the 60s Marvel in the 70s is uh, it's sort of the 60s all over again mm-hmm. uh, and there are a few exceptions and Howard the Duck is one of them mm-hmm. um, so um, there's a lawsuit over ownership of Howard and uh, Gerber is not getting a lot of work in comics by uh, the late 70s and early 80s. Uh, and he's, he's writing for TV animation. And he becomes story editor of G.I. Joe. And uh, subversive is too strong, but <laughs> there, there are moments throughout season one of G.I. Joe which are smarter than other kid cartoons, funnier than other kid cartoons and craftier um and there are there there are three episodes that are almost subversive and Mm. and i could talk about those for days Um, what are they just for reference uh there's no place like springfield part one and two uh where shipwreck thinks he's going crazy because he wakes up five years after uh the gi joe cobra conflict has ended right Mm. um but cobra is actually interrogating him to get the secret formula Mm. Um, there's an episode, uh, this must be season two, this is 86, um, and Gerber was not the story editor, but the show still has his fingerprints, uh, called Once Upon a Joe, where Shipwreck accidentally shoots down a Cobra jet, which crashes into an orphanage and burns it down. So he spends the next day distracting some of the kids by telling them a story while the other Joes are helping rebuild the orphanage. Oh, right. I, I, remember I remember those. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And the, the story that he tells is like poking fun at GI Joe and also other cartoons. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's, there's an episode uh, called the wrong stuff uh, where um, Cobra puts a satellite in orbit and runs uh, broadcasts its own network. And there are a couple scenes which make fun of television. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a character who shows up at the beginning and the end of the episode who's like Mr. T, mm. but he's got this sort of C-shaped mohawk right. in his hair <laughs> and he's wearing a vest and he's beefy and he's Mr. C. Yeah. Um, so um, uh, the G.I. Joe cartoon um, – Gerber pulled in a lot of people who had written for comic books. Mm. So like Marv Wolfman, you know, who's best known for writing so many um, Teen Titans comics, Mm. but has also written a lot of of TV animation at this point. Um, uh, Jerry Conway, who, Mm. you know, wrote Spider-Man and Amazing Spider-Man in the 1970s. Um, So part of it was... um, the sort of writing creative force for season one was smart and really enjoyed the opportunity. And part of it was there was all this freedom to tell stories um, in terms of narrative. So again, uh, in the eighties, GI Joe's in syndication. So there are not really strict rules about 
um, character and drama and, and conflict. You know, you can't show blood. No one's going to die. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, if if you crash a plane into an orphanage, you show all the kids getting out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yes, you do. <laughs> and and it's and it's you know think of tone. It's not played as a nightmare for these children. It's not a horror film. Mm-hmm. Um, so the writers were free, were freed mm-hmm. um, from these sort of shackles that had uh, kept sh- animated shows of the early eighties and seventies that were bound by these network restrictions mm-hmm. um, to tell really interesting stories. Mm. Um, you know, uh, Buzz Dixon wrote an episode of G.I. Joe that's basically the prisoner. Mm. Mm-hmm. Except the the island with this, you know, where this where this prisoner is, mm-hmm. the island is, is Candyland. Oh, right. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. I remember that. And that episode, if, if, if you're watching the show and an older sibling or a parent just walks by, they might think you're watching just another kid's show. Like, oh, there's there's some people and they're being chased by robots on a candy land. And it just, you know, looks like My Little Pony. It looks like Super Friends. <laughs> if you watch three minutes of the episode, it's really bizarre and smart mm-hmm. and and dramatic and entertaining. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, uh, Buzz Dixon... He's the story editor for the second season uh, in 1986, which mm-hmm. also starts with a five-part miniseries. Uh, and this introduces this character, Serpentor, who's this mm-hmm. uh, who's this art- artificially created biological man, this this Cobra Emperor, right? Um, yeah. Uh, and uh, and then the next year, there's the animated movie, which which does not get a theatrical release and sort of quietly shows up on TV and quietly shows up on, on VHS. Actually, you're not quite right about that one though. I'm pretty sure the animated movie did get shown in some markets outside of the United States. In fact, I could have sworn it got shown here in Canada. Don, do you have any? Yeah. No, if you remember what happened, because, because we got the, the rundown on this, the Transformers movie came out in theaters. Oh, right. And what ended up happening was um, the G.I. Joe movie was supposed to be in theaters soon after. But because in the Transformers movie, 30-year-old spoiler alert, they killed Optimus Prime. They got so much hate mail about that. And that the uh, the distributor... Oh, was it Lionsgate that distributed it? I think it was. Yeah, the distributor... It's D- yeah, It's D-E-G. Oh, yeah. They their, got... their, logo, their logo is a lion. Yeah, yeah. That's why, okay. They got nervous about sending it to, like, the expense of doing it as a theatrical release because they got so much hate mail from from the uh, Transformers one. And that's why um, everybody as a kid remembers the scene where they've beaten all the Cobra Law guys and some disembodied voice goes, Hey, I just heard, Duke's okay! Because they figured, well, if we kill off Duke, we're going to get more hate mail, so they change it last minute. And there was other stuff that was um, that was edited out because they decided it wasn't going to be a, a theatrical release. There was a couple scenes that got taken out because there was supposed to be there's like a, a a nude scene in it. Yeah, with Serana. Yeah, that that well, got taken you, out. So technically, a nude scene, yes, but you'd see her very briefly briefly from behind. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. not not spicy. Well, I mean, if you're like a 11 year old kid, yeah, but 
That that's true. But but PG PG nude, not yeah, yeah. not R rated yeah, nude. Yeah. Well, I'd, I'd say eighties PG nude because remember that meant something different back in the eighties than it does now. That's true. Yeah. But yeah, that's that was the that was the thing there. Um, I think one of the things you're 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 right about um, the comic, the the TV show. The TV show had more limits than the comic did. But the nice thing was they did something that was genuinely new. Like the 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 cartoon didn't look like other cartoons. It didn't play out like other cartoons. Like you say. They wrote it on different levels. There'd be some subtext to stuff, some sneaky things, stuff that would make you think a little bit. And because it was making all the money in the world, the executives just kind of just keep doing it. It's working. Nobody's sending us angry letters. Just just do it. And I think what ends up happening, because um, G.I. Joe really did the toys, the show, the comic. It set the template for damn near everything that came after. And I think that was the problem because, say, when you get to the uh, the mid going into the late 80s, everybody was using that G.I. Joe formula. You did a toy. You did a TV show. It started with a five-part miniseries that at one time you'd run as a movie on, on like, Saturday afternoon. You'd do your series. You'd follow the format. Even the idea of the characters all having, like, their 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 individual names and that, that came from from, from G.I. Joe. The idea of inter-team conflict came out of G.I. Joe as well. And um, I, when, when, no, wait. I mean, the X-Men had inter-team conflict. Yeah, but they didn't have a cartoon. And when you did get, like, a cartoon, you got Spider-Man and his amazing friends where they didn't fight with each other. Mm, okay, that's true. Whereas, because I, I remember hearing um, that... Um, Hasbro came up with the basic ideas for the characters. They had the look. And when it went to, to like Larry Hammond, he got it. He didn't like what they had done because he thought it was kind of bland. It was too white bread. And that's why if you look at like the personalities of, of the original like characters on their card net, they all got all kinds of problems. Like, like clutch is a serial rapist waiting to happen. And short fuse has anger management problems. And I think I remember, uh, um, rock and roll is like a like a hippie guy in that and that was sort of the first time you saw that kind of thing too that effort to to make the team unique if i can if i can correct you on one thing okay there don um it's not that hama didn't like what hasbro had developed for the characters Mm -hmm. when he was writing those uh personality cards on the back of the toy packaging it's that there were no personalities oh okay so hasbro this is back in 80 81 hasbro had these 10 or so characters that they're developing as action figures and you have you know infantry guy and Mm -hmm. counterintelligence woman and ranger guy and machine gunner guy and um uh they had code names and they had specialties and that was it okay and so Hama initially wrote those personality profile pages for his own reference. So in writing the comic, he'd be able to figure out who these characters were and what they wanted. Mm-hmm. Hasra liked them and they wanted to incorporate them into the packaging. So they were they were condensed. Uh, okay. And I've also, heard, <laughs> I've also heard it told a little bit from the other direction where um, at Hasbro, 
in coming up with the toy packaging, um, they wanted something collectible. Uh, mm-hmm. And the, the idea, the reference was baseball cards. Oh, okay. So what if we have some kind of card in the package or on the package, right? So as a kid, you'd take scissors and you'd cut out the bottom third of the the package. Um, so that's where the those uh, those those file uh, those command files those dossiers come from. Okay. Yeah, because I heard I heard a lot of that. That like, that was all him. Um, what I'd also heard when when he was designing the the characters and doing the comic, because everybody else kind of passed on it and didn't have a lot of interest in it, that they kind of left him alone. That he he got to do what he wanted with with a lot of the uh, the characters in the story. So, from from a Marvel perspective, yes, Hama was left alone mm-hmm. because no one cared about this book, which was not in the Marvel universe. It wasn't X-Men. It wasn't Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. Um, but from a Hasbro point of view, the opposite is remember every year he's getting 15 to 40 new characters and vehicles yeah. that he has to incorporate, which is the opposite of being left alone. <laughs> so that book was a, was a particular, you know, juggling act. Mm-hmm. Um, did, did either of you uh, watch GI Joe on television in 89 90 or 91 when there were new episodes made uh oh. by the animation studio deke oh yeah i kind i kind of remember uh the like really brightly colored ones yeah, yeah that's that's that that's a way to describe them yeah i remember there's an episode where the characters basically play what is effectively soccer using tanks and other vehicles that's all. Is it, that's it, all I remember. Is it, is it football? Are or, they playing or, football? Or football is it, might is be it, football. Yeah. Is is it pigskin pigskin commandos? And that's the episode where Sergeant Slaughter's sister gets kidnapped by Cobra. I think that's it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and yes, I I did just say the sentence where Sergeant Slaughter's sister gets kidnapped by Cobra. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Actually, we should talk about that. Actually, Sergeant Slaughter's an interesting thing because. He kind of took over G.I. Joe after a little while. Mm. Yeah, so um, some of the characters in the toy line were um, inspired by characters from pop culture or character types Mm -hmm. from pop culture. Right. Mm -hmm. And uh, the idea was floated a bunch of times that there should be a real person in G.I. Joe. So, you know, there's a Ron Rudat drawing of uh, Ronald Reagan. You know, mm-hmm. maybe they were going to make a Ronald Reagan figure or, <laughs> um, you know, maybe they were going to make a uh, – th- this one I'm only half remembering. So I'm I'm sort of saying this uh, as a hypothetical, you know, a Clint Eastwood figure. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, th- the notion was, is there a real person who we could put in this toy line who would enhance it and not distract. Hmm. Um, and hmm. and if you think about this category, it's going to have to be someone who who fits. You know, like it, it can't be it can't be Michael Knight from Knight Rider. Mm-hmm. You know, like it can't be a David Hasselhoff character because he's more he's not a spy, but he basically acts like a spy. Mm-hmm. Um, and it can't be. Um, 
I can't be like Emmanuel Lewis from the TV show <laughs> mm. Webster, right? Like it can't be, you know, Prince. It can't be Michael Jackson. Um, oh, oh man, now it I can't wish be, Prince it was Prince. It can't be Johnny Five from Short Circuit, right? Like mm, it's right. going to be someone pa- patriotic. It's going to be some kind of action, tough character. Um, and uh, Hasbro had made a um, uh, had made a Sergeant Slaughter thumb wrestling figure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this was to test the waters. Mm-hmm. Um, this was not this was not a posable action figure. This was a more like a. It's not PVC, I'm sure. My my friend who owns a toy company would would know what kind of plastic this was. But um, a a thumb wrestling figure, and there had been uh, some competitor was making uh, wrestling thumb wrestling uh, toys. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I I don't remember sort of which wrestling federation uh, was most active in you know '85, but. Um, sort of as the WWF is mm-hmm. is becoming like the prime one. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, Hasro makes this deal with Sergeant Slaughter. Uh, they make an action figure um, initially as a very specific GI Joe figure in the same size and scale. He's available as a mail order figure. And then the next year he's available at stores with a tank. Mm-hmm. And because he's now a fully fledged character in the line, he's also going to show up in the comic book mm-hmm. and uh, on the show. And um, because the the real person, Sergeant Slaughter, the the, the celebrity, the wrestler, um, because he's such a performer, correct? Because wrestling is so much a performance. Mm-hmm. Um, he ends up being this really um, ideal spokesperson hmm. for GI Joe. Yep. Um, Hasbro did something around the same time. Um, uh, William Perry from the Chicago yeah, Bears. Yeah. The pe- William the Refrigerator Perry was a GI Joe figure as well. Yeah, yeah. So there's a there's a GI Joe figure who's codenamed Fridge or the Fridge, and um, so you have these two, you know, big um, celebrity athletes, uh, but they're still you know athletes. It's not they're, they're not you know they're not actors who are. You know, Sergeant Slaughter isn't a pretend wrestler. He's a wrestler. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, Slaughter actually hosts, um, when the show goes into reruns in uh, 1988, mm-hmm. might have even been, might have even, it might have been uh, fall of 87, mm-hmm. um, uh, Sergeant Slaughter actually hosts uh, mm. that season of reruns that like that year's syndication package. Right. Um, so, you know, the, the bumpers going to commercial and coming back from commercial are, are him standing in front of a giant uh, sort of flag. And um, uh, he's in a bunch of commercials mm-hmm. um, as a live action, as a real person. Um, and then uh, he gets a second action figure. Um, I think it's 89 and he, he's driving a this amazing, uh, sort of real life swamp uh, amphibious tank, mm-hmm. and uh, and then he also shows up in those as you described them more colorful episodes right. um, <laughs> in in 1990, um, mm-hmm. and and by then uh, in in 89 there's an entire segment of the action figures that are named after him. He gets his own little team, mm-hmm. uh, Slaughter's Marauders. So the episodes in 89. 
he's he's in that five part miniseries and he's leading his little team and uh um it's it's an interesting case where th- there's no comparison in transformers or in uh you know another toy brand of the 80s where there is such a long running and strong um affiliation with a quote real person mm. Yeah, that's yeah, that's true. They, I can only kind of think of one, mm-hmm. and it didn't. I don't remember what it was called, but again, it was one of the uh, early '90s, the 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 girl action figure series that they were supposed to be like magic type people, and there was an actual stage magician that they based them on, and she was the host of the show. But wasn't I it that there was like some Chinese, wasn't she? Chinese or Japanese? Wasn't she Asian? Yeah, I can't remember what it was called. Like I, it oh, was on. I know it was what you're on talking in, about. It was on between things I liked, so that's why I kind of remember it. Right. But, but yeah, the, also didn't Slaughter's Marauders? Didn't they appear in? Uh, didn't they appear in GI Joe the movie in '87? Yeah, the, Slaughter leads a different group. Uh, he has a, he has a different team. Oh, okay. Um, mm-hmm. In the movie, those are his um, rawhides. Oh, okay. Rawhides, oh, yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah, because they send uh... or his his renegades. Sorry, yeah. I got that wrong. Because um, they're, they're the they're the discipline cases. Because they send uh, shoot, I can't remember his name. It's like Duke's nephew, Lieutenant Duke's Hawk Duke's hat. No, no, uh, Lieutenant Falcon. Falcon. Uh, Duke's yeah, Duke's half brother. Yeah, this part of the part of the story of the animated movie is that uh one of the characters for the toy line that year, Falcon, in the story of the movie, um, he messes up, Cobra has a victory and some Joes get injured, and so his punishment is mm. that he's sent to Sergeant Slaughter for special training. Yeah. yeah. And there Sergeant Slaughter has this trio of G.I. Joe characters who haven't joined the team yet because they're so you know dangerous mm. um and and uncontrollable and yep, uh it's that this trio is called sergeant slaughter's renegades and at retail those three characters were sold in a three pack yeah so okay. so they don't they don't directly relate to the segment the team that he has in 89 um except that hasbro seemed to like giving sergeant slaughter small teams of, of mm. guys. Okay. Huh. That makes sense. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I remember those. Yeah. Okay. But obviously, um, the, the 89 to what, 91 Joe series didn't do all that well. Uh, the animated series. So I don't, I don't have information on its ratings, mm. but, um, when it was on, the toy sales went back up a lot. Oh, okay. So it did work. Hmm. So it did work. And uh, I think to the extent that um, Deke, the animation studio responsible for those episodes, mm-hmm. you know, Deke had stuff that it owned, like Inspector Gadget. Right. Yeah. And then it had stuff that it did for hire, uh, like G.I. Joe. And... Um, that is not going to be as much of a priority, mm. um, but uh, it it was. I mean, Deke sought out that deal. It it didn't fall in Deke's lap, and right. um, 
I, you know, they, they put just as much into that as they did the other animated stuff they were doing in 89 and 90 and 91. Um, so, um, if I had to guess, I would say ratings were good. Hmm, okay. Yeah, but but I but I do not know. Hmm. Yeah, because it was on um, for... and 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 tellingly, it was on for three years. Yeah, no, that's true. Okay, so I guess yeah, I guess I guess it didn't. But so, but I do know do notice that it ends just not too long after it ends. GI Joe ends as well, or at least that era of GI Joe ends as well. Yeah, that's so. The end of Real American Hero. Uh, I've, I've been writing this chapter for the last year and a half, and it's it's sad. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm. um, but the 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 very short version is that Hasbro had bought Kenner. Mm-hmm. So, um, but for several years, the two companies were kept separate. Okay. So, uh, so. The toy design out of Rhode Island, G.I. Joe and Transformers, um, was competing with itself. So one part hmm. of the company was competing with another part of the company. So Kenner mm-hmm. in Cincinnati um, had all the movie licenses. Uh, Batman, uh, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, Jurassic Park. Right. So the 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 toy-making culture of these two divisions of the company very different and kenner was about to get star wars again Mm. um gi joe sales were um excellent when there was a gi joe tv show and very good when there wasn't Mm -hmm. um but gi joe by 93 had been on the market for 11 years which is shocking yeah and to some extent, uh, it it looked old and tired, mm-hmm. and to another extent, um, all these competitor action figures—Batman, Power Rangers, Turtles—they were all bigger. Mm-hmm. Um, so the idea was um, to start over, to try something different. And so uh, the so Hasbro in Rhode Island uh, decided that. Kenner would take G.I. Joe. Mm. And so a, a new version of G.I. Joe was designed for 1996. Uh-oh. Uh, and, and I'm skipping over uh, a line that was, uh, was not intended to be a stopgap between the end of Real American Hero and the beginning of Kenner's G.I. Joe. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it ended up being a stopgap. Um, and uh, Kenner's G.I. Joe, which was bigger and less posable, but much more detailed, um, but was supported by a TV cartoon and a comic book. Lasted two years. Um, and then, uh, you know, G.I. Joe by 97, 98 um, comes back to Rhode Island uh, and, and the familiar characters of, of Real American Hero. Mm. Right. Hmm. Yeah, because are, are you talking about the uh, G.I. Joe Extreme? I am you. <laughs> well, so um, it's it's funny. I, I at the time I was disappointed by it, and now I feel like a defender of GI Joe Extreme. Um, I think, in comparison to Real American Hero, which had so much going for it, mm-hmm. um, GI Joe Extreme uh, has some flaws, or 
could be considered disappointing. Mm. Um, but on its own, um, there's a lot to like about the toy line. Um, I think the characters are um, at least interesting and <laughs> feel like they actually fit really well. I mean, G.I. Joe Extreme was not really connected to Real American Hero. Yeah. But, you know, the, the good guys and the bad guys all feel like G.I. Joe. And um, and and the show was uh, was well written and had a distinct animation style, which is maybe not your cup of tea, but um, mm-hmm. didn't didn't look like other shows. Um, so yeah, I, I see GI Joe. I see GI Joe Extreme as um, as a really interesting attempt. Okay, I guess that the the bad guys I remember weren't too bad because they were sort of. They were sort of Cobra, but more like badass. Because by then, especially after, like, say, the Deke series, things had kind of gotten kiddied up a little bit. Yes. And I, and I think that was the nice thing. What were they called? It wasn't the Iron Claw. Iron Claw is the head villain, and the army is called Scar, which is spelled, yeah. with, a K, spelled with a K. Soldiers S-K- of Chaos, Anarchy, and Ruin. There yeah. we go. And and G.I. Joe Extreme is set in the future. So the toys show up in uh, 96, uh, but the story is set in 2010, 2011. The far future. Yeah. Because mm. they did, at the same time too, didn't they do, what was it, Sergeant Storm, which was like the World War II one? Yeah, so that stopgap that I mentioned um, is Sergeant Savage. Okay. And that is bigger, in, it's a taller action figure, than Real American Hero, but not as tall as uh, G.I. Joe Extreme. It's very World War II flavored, though it's it's set contemporary. Okay. And uh, this was Hasbro in Rhode Island. This was their attempt to offer a, a an action figure that was physically bigger than yeah. Real American Hero. So if, if Batman is and Turtles and Power Rangers are taller than three and three, three quarters inches, um, could there be not a replacement, but a supplement to Real American Hero yeah. uh, that was bigger? Okay, that explains that. Because I, I vaguely, I, I, the thing I remember from that line most was um, they had a Spitfire with like a giant rocket launcher underneath it. Yeah, that's uh, uh, that's Sergeant Savage's P-40 Warhawk. Yeah, and I remember looking at that going, that would never work, but oh my god, is that awesome. <laughs> So where is G.I. Joe, like, right now, basically, as far as, like, is it basically just a nostalgia thing, or is there still really uh, a whole generation of people, you know, still into G.I. Joe? Is it still a going concern as toys go and everything? Oh, um, so as of this recording... Um, Early 2018. There are, yeah, there there are effectively no toys. The toy line is is basically dead. So there mm. there will be... Um, a few figures offered this year at the official G.I. Joe Collectors Convention, which is in, uh, is it June in, uh, in Chattanooga, Tennessee? Yeah. And, but you have to go to the convention to buy them. Mm, right. Okay. Um, and the official G.I. Joe Collectors Club, that's the fan club, um, and same people run that convention. Uh, they've been offering a few figures through the mail, but you have to join the club. Mm. Um, a year ago, Hasbro said that there was no toy line, uh, that there was no 2018 line, 
There was no 2019 line, and there are no GI Joe toys at retail right now at in in toy stores. And hmm. Hasbro said last year um, there would only next be GI Joe toys when there was a third movie. Hmm. So the movie hmm. um, is as of this recording. Um, there's a release date. Uh, what is it? March? Is it March 2020? Um, I'm, I'm sure one of you could Google at the IMDb while I'm saying this. Um, so um, Hasbro announced uh, a year and a half or two back that based on the success of the Transformers movie, um, Hasbro was going to create a, quote, writer's room. And this is using a TV term mm-hmm. um, for motion pictures. Um, and this comes somewhat from... Uh, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, where you have several movies that are connected. So Hasbro wanted to put together its own cinematic universe, which was going to be, which is going to be uh, sort of everything but Transformers. So mm. uh, G.I. Joe, mm-hmm. Mask, yeah. uh, Rom, Rom, Micronauts, Visionaries. And um, many, many writers were brought in, you know, 10 writers were brought in. Uh, to hash out some stories for these different brands. Mm-hmm. And um, it looks like two of those may not happen, and three of them do have release dates. They're going to come out after the Bumblebee movie. Hmm. Um, and again, not connected to Transformers, but just in terms of Hasbro brands. Right, yeah. And um, But a third G.I. Joe movie is uh, going to start over. It's not going to be related in continuity to the last two. Probably and. And someone at Hasbro said six months ago or a year ago, um, someone high up said, um, and and excuse me for for badly paraphrasing, but something like, uh, you know, we need new characters and a new GI Joe for for today. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if that means sort of the same names and new identities. I don't know if that means a complete blank slate and not even having any kind of snake eyes or any kind of Cobra commander. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I imagine that that actually changes every couple of weeks <laughs> right now at Hasbro or at Hasbro's, you know, all spark pictures office in Los Angeles. And I, and I don't say that jokingly. I think, um, I think in terms of toys and movies and brands, these same five powerhouses, Marvel, Batman, mm-hmm. Turtles, um, Transformers, and um, I'm blanking on whatever the fifth one is. But um, And when I say Batman, I mean all of DC. Right, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but it might as well but, be Batman. Yeah. yeah. But we, we are seeing in, in toys and in movies and in TV, you know, sort of the same brands, characters and teams – you know, every two or three years, there's a new, there's a sequel or there's a new invention. Yeah. Oh, you mean um, Star Wars? Star Wars would be. Uh, oh. yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. <laughs> that small yes. film. Don't worry. That one. Forget. Yeah. <laughs> that 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 one that we talked about at the beginning. Yeah. Um, so, um, and you know, you know, if you're a Star Wars fan, it's amazing. There's a movie every well, year, and there's a there's another TV show, and there's yeah. you know there's there's this there's board games and backpacks and toys at three different scales and all this stuff. Um, but it, it does, uh, these five brands, these five juggernauts do take a lot of the air out of the room for other brands. Yeah. Um, in terms of uh, comic books, uh, 
G.I. Joe is in a uh, good place right now. Um, mm-hmm. uh, IDW Publishing, which is the publisher uh, that has all the Hasbro licenses. Um, I, IDW has been doing wonderful, wonderful things with Transformers for the last uh, eight or so years. Mm-hmm. And um, also picked up the G.I. Joe license and initially uh, created a new continuity Mm-hmm. Uh, which which did not continue the 80s Marvel continuity. And um, sometimes I say the Marvel continuity and the IDW continuity. Sometimes I say the PG continuity and the PG-13 continuity. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. um, the IDW continuity felt um, more like the TV show 24. Right. And um, just just looks and feels more like you know 2010 Mm. Mm. um and uh and then in addition to that idw um asked larry hama if he wanted to continue writing his gi joe Mm. and so um a bunch of years back uh idw just published issue 156 which is the issue after the final marvel issue um so um Hama has, um, and one guy drew about 80 of these 100 issues. Um, wow. Uh, this artist named um, Shannon Gallant, S.L. Gallant, mm-hmm. um, who just extraordinary. Uh, his, his storytelling, uh, his, his clear layout of action and character acting is really wonderful. And he just finished his, mm-hmm. um, his for G.I. Joe, record-breaking run. No one has drawn that many issues at G.I. Joe. Um, and uh, issue 249 just came out, and issue 250, which will be a an oversized anniversary issue with a big ninja fight, uh, comes out next month, hmm. and uh, or is it or is it late this month? And uh, so uh, toys not in a great place, uh, mm. movies not in a great place. There is no TV show. Um, uh, the comic book is in a good place, uh, but a few months ago. Uh, I guess I guess technically the final issue is is this week, but a few months ago IDW um, canceled the uh, the non Larry Hama uh, GI Joe comic book. Um, so right now there's only one uh, continuity for the comics, and there's only one monthly comic. Oh, okay, and that's the Larry Hama one. Yeah. Yeah. So um, uh, so uh, if um if Hasbro um if Hasbro is interested I mean the advantage of G.I. Joe is that Hasbro owns G.I. Joe. Mm-hmm. And Hasbro doesn't own I mean when when Hasbro makes Marvel toys, they're paying Marvel to make Marvel toys. Right. And when Hasbro makes Transformers, there's a little bit of a fee which goes to Takara Tomi, which is the company in Japan mm, that yeah. origi- that originated those physical toys in the 70s, even if the, the concept of Autobots and Decepticons and the story of Transformers yeah. is American. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and, uh, and when Hasbro makes Star Wars toys, you know, they're paying, you know, first Lucasfilm and now Lucasfilm and Disney to do that. Mm-hmm. And if Hasbro wants to make GI Joe toys, they just make GI Joe toys. Right. So, yeah. Um, but there, there has to be, there has, there have to be 
designers who have good ideas and there have to be um, managers and vice presidents who want it to happen. And I think, unfortunately, right now, the media landscape is such that Hasbro can only see doing this if mm. there is also a movie. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And and a movie right now is a tall order because the landscape is so um, dotted with, you know, the Marvel movies and the Star Wars movies and Harry Potter movies and, and well, you know. Well, yes, yes and no. I mean, now we're seeing, of course, the whole expansion of uh i guess you could see the prime what's the what's the term for it the, the best time for movies to come out it, it was the summer before but now we're seeing movies like inching into all the non-prime periods now like for example pacific rim uh the new one's coming out this month um this is march when we're recording this there's wrinkle mm-hmm. in times coming out this month oh uh ready player one which i thought was gonna be a big summer temple was actually coming out this month too Huh. I mean, and oh, by the way, uh, March 27th, 2020 is G.I. Joe 3 or the G.I. Joe reboot you're talking about. Ah, OK. Thank, thank you for that fact yeah, check. Yeah. And hmm. so even there, there's still so we're starting to see, as you said, that there are certain movies that are definitely taking the oxygen. But that's why we're starting to see the releases are starting to spread out a little more to, to, to try to get some of that extra um, space. Uh, which hopefully will allow for more franchises, like maybe G.I. Joe. Maybe the next G.I. Joe will be completely awesome and start a new, whole new trend. You never know. You know they... I, I hope, I, I hope that there's another G.I. Joe movie, and whether it's the characters that we know and love or all new characters, I hope it's a, it's a story and an aesthetic um, that I, uh, that I, that I find appealing and can get behind. Mm. Well, yeah, I, I do too. Um, I'm not <laughs> they, sure what they, the odds are, but we'll, we'll hope for it. Well, you you could do one where like they're all kids, and it's like when they were kids. <laughs> what what would you call that? Would you call it GI Joe Junior, GI Joe Kids? <laughs> would it be Would it be one word, but the K is capitalized? <laughs> we should, we should be Joe Kids, yeah. Yeah, we, we shouldn't dwell on it because somebody will hear this and it'll happen. G.I. <laughs> Joe Babies. There G. it G. is. Junior. There it is. G.I. <laughs> Joe. Well, because here, it's a brand name, okay? So which means it's not going away. It will be yeah. back in one form or another because as long as it has – that name has cachet. I mean, for, for you know, we're, we're basically still making Buck Rogers and Flash Gordon um stuff because it still has that is those still have brand names and so they pop up every couple years i mean my god this month there's a new lost in space series coming out on netflix just because it's from the 60s and it people kind of remember it and lost in space and danger will robinson and okay and so they're making like a whole super expensive series on netflix just because yeah so the so the the bright side is that in 1970 Eight mm-hmm. in 1979 and 1980, there was no GI Joe, right? And in 1999, mm-hmm. there was no GI Joe, no toys, no comics, right. no cartoons. And hopefully, we're just in another one of those temporary times. And maybe 20 years from now, mm-hmm. someone will be in charge at Netflix or Paramount or Hasbro, who grew up with. GI Joe in 2006, yep. mm-hmm. and and that's 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 the version that they will champion. Right. Mm. So, actually, speaking of that, one last thing because we're running out of time, but and of course it's getting late for you as well, Tim. So, what do you think about Joe's cultural impact? Do you think GI Joe has had a real impact on American culture? 
Yes. Yes, I do. Um, I don't know if I could do that in a sentence, though. I mean, um, you don't have to uh, be one sentence, but okay. Well, I mean, you know, um, you know, uh, I, there are there are all these firsts that that we've mm. we've talked about. You know, first action figure, uh, first animated TV miniseries. Mm. Um, uh, it, you know, when you say, and now I know, someone else <laughs> yes. in the room will will finish that sentence yes, for you. Yes, they will. Um, or is it now you know now now you know uh well even if you get it wrong if i say now i know yeah I know. someone will finish it and if if i say that's now true. you know someone else will finish it that's true that's true someone's gonna finish um, that sentence that's true yeah i don't know that it's it's you know changed society but but the same way that you know ninja turtles has now a second generation Mm-hmm. of fans you know gi joe is on its third generation of fans right mm. um this thing started in 64 hmm. um that's true so uh and 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 i don't say that in terms of nostalgia i i mean in in, in the present tense you mm-hmm. know there are right now three generations of gi joe fans hmm. who are you know hungry for stories and for for play um mm-hmm. And the stories may be on paper, they may be on a screen, the play may be with plastic, it may be with some kind of game. Um, uh, but but yes, G.I. Joe is um, is a big part of American culture, even if right now it's it's on a it's on a, uh, a quiet um, sabbatical. Yeah. Uh, well, look, I mean, there there is a comic book, so I don't. I, it's not like it's inactive, but that's it's, true. Uh, yeah, it is know. there, but it's not a big active force in current culture at the moment. But but right. you never mm-hmm. know. I mean, who knows? You know, militarism may be in again real soon. So we'll see what happens. Although I can I can point out something that might um, excite or depress both of you. Okay, please do, Don. Okay, here's here's one of the the weird ways the the nerdosphere works. Now this is all technicalities. Mm-hmm. Because you mentioned that in the original Transformers comic book miniseries, Spider-Man shows up. Mm-hmm. And with all kinds of different Wayne dangling, the character Circuit Breaker from Transformers is an official Marvel character now. So that happened. Technically, Transformers are part of the Marvel Universe. Mm-hmm. Remember that they did a G.I. Joe Transformers miniseries in the comic, which technically means G.I. Joe is part of the Marvel Universe. Mm-hmm. And if you remember going back to the 70s, the Avengers fought Godzilla. So technically, you could have, because it's all the same universe, G.I. Joe fighting Godzilla at some point. I'll read that story. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I would well, too. They're, they're teaming up with everyone else. Apparently, just a, this month or last month, a G.I. Joe and uh, $6 million man crossover co- series started. Mm-hmm. Yeah, issue one shipped uh, last week. Yeah, drawn drawn by that artist um, S. L. Gallant, who just finished wow. his eighty issues of GI Joe. Wow. It's good. I read it. I'm I'm not a big Six Million Dollar Man fan, but I I read it a couple of days ago and I like it. Oh, wow. okay. And you can buy it at my comic book store, Hub Comics, in Union Square, Somerville, Massachusetts. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, so when is your book going to be coming out? Hmm. I don't have a release date because I'm still writing it, mm-hmm. but um, it's 20 chapters, and uh, the 
the first I wrote the first half of the book between um oh six and uh I guess thirteen. Mm-hmm. And I've been writing the second half of the book since then. And the second half of the book um has gone into more detail. And my designer and I, she's laying out all the pages as mm-hmm. I finish each chapter. Mm-hmm. Uh the second half of the book is a little bit more developed. So um I am getting uh I'm working on chapters uh fifteen, seventeen, nineteen, and twenty right now. Uh, and out of 20 chapters, that sounds like I'm almost at the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, then I want to go back and uh, do some revisions on 1 through 10. So the first half of the book balances with the second half of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also want uh, a couple very knowledgeable G.I. Joe fans to read it and give me some feedback. Um, so there is more writing and editing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but considering that I've been writing it since 06 and researching it since 01... Uh, I really am getting kind of near the end. Right. Um, so, but if I had to give you a number, I'd say three years. Right. Or, or two years. Um, but I post updates on my blog, which is a real American book dot wordpress dot com. Um, and, uh, you can find me on, on Facebook and, uh, Twitter, uh, also a real American book. Uh, and, uh, I'm at my comic book store two or three mm-hmm. times a week, and we have a big selection of G.I. Joe graphic novels. And mm-hmm. uh, I'm always happy to talk about um, anything comics at the store. But of of me and the of myself and the four employees, um, I I am definitely the G.I. Joe expert. <laughs> right. Huh. Well, I I, I absolutely believe that. Um, so thank you very much, Tim, for coming on. We mm-hmm. really appreciate it. It's been a great talk. We've learned a lot about G.I. Joe from you. Yeah. You're welcome. Thank you, Rob, and thank you, Don. And thank you, audience, for listening. Please tune in next time when we'll be talking about an equally fascinating subject. Well, or at least we'll do our best to come up with someone who's almost as interesting as Tim. Uh, <laughs> take care and good night. Bye. Thanks for listening to the show. If you'd like to hear more or join the conversation, come visit us at obeythedna.com. You can also find us on iTunes or whatever fine podcast site forgot to lock their back door. So until next time, remember that to master the nerdly arts takes time, practice, and enough Coca-Cola to drop a rhino. See ya! See ya!